We're going to continue in 1 John this evening. 1 John chapter 5. We left off at verse 12. We're going to pick up in verse 13 here in just a moment. You know, there's been quite a bit of confusion during this coronavirus uh, pandemic. There have been some that have put forth some ideas about uh, government conspiracies and, and the government trying to take our rights from us during this time. And, and it's, it's what I would, would call a, a, a conspiracy theory. It, it can't be proved. It's nothing that we've been able to prove, but it has added to the confusion. Now, I personally have a rule. Every person is allowed one conspiracy theory. If you have more than one conspiracy theory that you hold to, then you're crazy, but you can hold one. But there are people that are convinced that whatever conspiracy theory they have chosen, that they are convinced that that conspiracy theory is the truth. But the truth is that there's always some element of faith involved in those conspiracy theories. There there has to be some point where, where you look at it and go, okay, I'm not so sure about this, but because I have faith in the rest of the theory, I accept it as true. Now, the Apostle John was absolutely certain about the truth of the gospel. And I'm not calling the gospel a conspiracy theory. Don't, don't take that and run with it like, like that's what I meant, because it's not. But what I, I am wanting to say to you is that the gospel is true. And John was concerned about the the plethora of false teachers and and false destructive messages that they were bringing into the church and and into into society. And so he sat down and he penned the letter of 1 John that we've been studying that summarized the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And he gave his readers a a self-test for determining the genuineness of a teacher or the genuineness of... Uh, of a message or the genuineness of an individual's claim of salvation, and true, fa- true faith rests on a foundation of doctrinal purity and moral purity. No one can claim to belong to God or to be commissioned by Him unless his or her life is, is marked by orthodox belief that results in obedient behavior that is marked and motivated by love, as we've studied so far. God does not want us as His children to live in uncertainty or to live in doubt. He wants us to be sure of where we stand. And so as John's closing his letter, and we're going to look at his closing passage, he focuses on these Christian certainties that we have. And so he uses the word no several times, in fact, seven times. He uses the word no in this passage. And so I want, as we're looking at this tonight, I want to draw out four principles about which John says that as Christians, we can be certain. We can be absolutely sure. So let's jump into this tonight. Let's start off by reading verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first thing that John says is we can know that we possess eternal life. We can know that we possess eternal life. And so John reminds his readers 
of who his primary audience is. It's, it's those of us who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ. And so John is writing this. And, and if you look back, John wrote his gospel, the, the gospel of John, to help us come to know Christ. Listen to what he says in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John wrote his Gospels so that we could come to know Jesus and find salvation in his name. But he says here he writes this letter so that you may know that you already possess eternal life. This letter is written to those who have believed in the message of the gospel that John wrote to help us know that we have come to know Jesus. So John wants us to have a certainty that we are saved, and you can know that you are saved. Now, some people believe you can't know with any certainty that you're saved. You can't know with any certainty that you are indeed a Christian. They believe that you will only know when your life on this earth is over. That you'll only know when you reach these great comic scale in the sky where your, your bad deeds are laid on one side of the scale and your good deeds are laid on the other side. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then, then you're okay. You're good to go in. But if, you're, if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then, then you're going to hell and you're going to spend eternity there. So many Christians live with this idea that, that you don't know. And, and really, this is a pagan idea. Ancient, Egypt, ancient Egyptians had this idea of, of the balancing scale. It's not a Christian idea by any means. In fact, I would say it's probably the most secular idea out there. Ancient Egyptians believed this. Uh, that's essentially what Muslims believe. You have to work hard, and it doesn't matter what you believe as long as what you do uh, balances out in the end. This idea of, of karma that comes from the Hindus, all of these secular ideas are not found in Scripture. And so this is not what Christians believe. Christians can be secure in our salvation because it doesn't rest in what we do, but it rests in what Christ has already done for us. And so throughout this letter, John has provided some tests for us to determine if you are a true believer. There was the test of love for, for your fellow Christians. Do you love those that you're around? Do you love those who claim to be Christians? Do you love those who are in the church? And then there's the test of righteousness. Do you seek to live in a way that pleases God? And then there's the, the idea of proper orthodoxy or, or right belief. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins? Because if you believe that, let me tell you, Scripture says that if you believe it and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you are saved. John's been writing this whole letter. Here's these tests for you. If you can answer yes to each of these three questions, then you can have certainty that you are saved. But there are many who say they believe all those things, yet they don't have an assurance of their salvation. There are many reasons why a Christian may doubt, and sometimes it's because they, they say they believe all these things, but their lifestyle that they're living is a lifestyle of sin, and, and so 
what they're saying and what they're living aren't matching up. Sometimes it's because God's calling a Christian to move on to a higher plane of service, maybe to become a, a pastor or to become a youth minister or become a deacon or an elder or to, to become a missionary. And they're afraid of that calling, and so they're running away from that, and, and so they begin to doubt, am I even a Christian to begin with? Because I don't feel like God and I are connecting. Sometimes it's the devil just simply working against you. It's working so hard against you because if you are a Christian who is on fire and serving God, you're going to do more damage to his kingdom. And so he wants to keep you from tapping into the power of Christ. And so he works hard against you to keep you from serving God. John says that every true Christian has had an experience of saving grace that comes from God, and they have been born of God. To be a true believer, you have to begin by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the initiation of the Christian life. That's the start. If you belong to Christ and He belongs to you, then, then you have eternal life because to have Jesus is to have life. Jesus said that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. He said that He is the resurrection and the life. To have Jesus is to have life. Jesus is the life, and He is eternal. So to have Jesus is to have eternal life. And so you can know with confidence that you possess eternal life if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that, that you meet those other requirements that John has been writing about, that you have right beliefs, that you have love for the brethren, and that you have right ways of living, righteous living. Let's continue by looking at verses 14 through 17. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. And so the second thing that John says is you can know with certainty that your prayers are effective. You can know with certainty that your prayers are effective. If we don't know... For, for certain that our salvation is secure, then when we pray, we're going to pray with this element of doubt. We're going to pray a weak prayer. But if we are assured, we know for certain that we are saved, that we have salvation in Christ Jesus, then we can have a strong prayer life. If we know that we have eternal life, then we can have confidence that God hears our prayers, that He answers our prayers. Christians can know with absolute confidence that God hears them and He answers them. And this confidence is built on our access to God. God wants you to have a boldness before Him. He wants you to boldly enter into His throne room and request things of Him. Listen to Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Prayer is the way that God has ordained for us to get that which we need. Dr. David Allen wrote, Prayer is not positive thinking. It's not spiritual self-hypnosis. 
It, it's no any not any such thing. Prayer is a spiritually real and vibrant activity by which we bring real needs to a real God who has a real love for us and real answers to give us. So when we pray, we can have certainty that God hears our prayers. You can know with certain certainty that God is hearing our prayers. John promises us that if we ask anything according to God's will, He hears us. Now, many people are confused about this because there are some that think that prayer is us trying to get something from God. They think that we're trying to get God to give us what we want. Some think of prayer as a way of trying to coerce or to to wrangle God in to doing what we want Him to do or to give us what we want Him to give us. Some try to pray with a bunch of fancy words and, and, and these and thous and, and long diatribes. of, Or maybe they try to pray in a certain place or, or find a certain position that you have to be in, whether it's head bowed, eyes closed, face to the ground, whatever. We try to, to do something like it's a magical incantation that we're trying to do and ask this genie to, to grant us our wish. But notice that John says it's only when we pray according to his will that he hears us. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not pray, Father, your will be changed. Give me what I want. But he said, Father, your will be done. So in prayer, we should learn to ask for things that align with God's will. And God has provided us great assistance, too great assistance, in fact, to help us in prayer. Because how do we know God's will? How do we know that we're praying according to God's will? Well, because these two great helpers, these great assistants help us. See, God provides us His Bible, His written Word. God gives clear directives, both positive and negative, do this, And don't do that in His Word. And God's will will never contradict His Word. And so by consulting what God has already said, we can greatly narrow the scope of our prayers. There there are many things about which we don't need to pray because He's already told us in His Word. So, immerse yourself in Scripture. Learn what God desires. Learn what God despises. And pray accordingly. Because once we've done that, you can pray in confidence. And so there's, there's the black and white of the page. But everyone can acknowledge that there's things that aren't in black and white. There are gray areas in our life. So how do we navigate those gray areas? Well, God gives to us a second assistant, and really it's himself. He gives us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you as a believer. He comes to live with you, and instead of having this, this angel on each shoulder that's telling us this is good and this is bad, we don't have that. 
I don't know where that idea came from, but we don't have that. What we do have is the Holy Spirit living within us, telling us this is what we are to do. And that same Spirit leads us in these gray areas. As a member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit will not lead us against the will of the Father. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 26 and 27, In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, and He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit and the Word of God work together to guide us in our prayer life. The Holy Spirit guides us in our prayers, and He intercedes on our behalf. And so, you know, prayer that, that works, true, powerful prayer actually doesn't originate with us at all, but originates with God. It originates with His Word, and it originates with His Spirit, not with us. God hears your prayers when you pray according to His will. And if you pray in according to His will, then He's going to answer your prayer. If you pray according to God's will, He's going to answer your prayer. There is a certainty when you're praying God's will. He's going to answer. Notice that John says, we have what we have asked of Him. It's a present tense verb. We already have it. It's not something that we're waiting to get, but it's already been done. God has already answered the prayer according to His will. Now, you may not have the answer immediately. You know, sometimes you, you write a letter, you put a bill in the mail. It, it doesn't arrive immediately. It's already been, the check's already been sent. It's, it's done, it's paid for, but it hasn't been received yet. But God's already given the answer. And God answers prayer in one of four ways. He may say yes, he may say no. He may say wait, or he may say, I'm going to answer your prayer in a way that's not exactly what you asked for. For example, in Acts 12, the apostle Peter was in prison, and the church prayed fervently. God answered their prayer in a miraculous fashion. Peter was released from prison as they were praying. An angel of the Lord came to him and led him out of the prison. There was definitely a yes there. But then on the other hand, Paul wanted to go into Asia. And, and he got up near the border of Asia and God said, no, you can't go there. And so Paul wasn't able to go. You know, Mary and Martha, they were praying that Jesus would come, heal their brother. Jesus said, wait. In fact, Scripture makes clear he tallied for four days to make sure that Lazarus had died. Then he came and he raised him up from the dead. He said, wait, I'm going to do something miraculous if you just hold on and wait for me. Once again, Paul, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He kept asking God, remove the thorn in my flesh. Remove it from my body. I don't, I don't want to have it anymore. 
God didn't remove it. But what he did do was give him something else. He gave him his all-sufficient grace. That's what he needed. Paul wanted it, the thorn in his flesh removed. We don't know what exactly that was, but he wanted it gone. God said, no, but I'll give you what you need. So here's the bottom line. Sometimes we pray with this timidity, this, this tentativeness. God, I, I think, I, I, I'm not sure about this, but maybe if this is your will, I'm not sure. We should pray with confidence in the will of God, knowing that He will answer. I wasn't planning to do this, and I know I'm running out of time, but in reading Dr. Allen's commentary is giving the example of Martin Luther and his friend was on his deathbed dying and, and it was getting to the point he couldn't even talk anymore. And he, he wrote to, to Martin Luther and said, I, you know, my time is about to be, to be gone. And Luther said, no, you're not. I'm praying to God on your behalf. You will live until I die. And he prayed. And he made, his friend made a miraculous recovery. And he lived to help Martin Luther during the, the Reformation. And about two months after Martin Luther died, so did his friend. Martin Luther prayed with confidence. We need to pray with that same type of confidence. So I know your prayers are effective. He hears your prayers, he answers your prayers, and since he does those things, we need to pray for others. Since we know that God hears our prayers and he answers them, John says we need to engage in intercessory prayer on behalf of other people. We should pray specifically, he says, for other Christians who are in sin. Now, John here is concerned about a sin that leads to death, and there's been various interpretations of what exactly that means. And frankly, we don't completely know 100% what that means. But the likeliest meaning is that of a physical death that was caused by God's discipline. See, Scripture records that God removes people from the physical world by a premature physical death because of their sin. Think back to Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a piece of property, and they, they gave some of the proceeds to the church, but claimed that they gave all that they had, all that they had received. So they lied to the church and thereby lied to God. And so God struck them dead. Look at what happened in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, let a person examine himself in this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. Some of these Corinthian believers were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And because of their sin, they were getting sick and some of them had died. I believe what John is writing here is about this ongoing Willful sin that remains unconfessed by the people of God to the point that God has to do something to prevent corruption in the church. And so he, he takes them out of this world. And John clarifies in the next verse, 
that all sin is sin. Uh, there's not some sins that are more of an affront against God than others are. They're all equal, and so when we see a fellow believer sinning, we need to love them enough to pray for them. Now, notice what I said there. Notice what the Scripture says. When you see them sinning, not that you heard them sinning, not that you heard that they were sinning. We're not talking about getting the rumor mill going in the, in the church prayer chain or, or in the church prayer meeting, getting the rumor mill started. But when you actually see that someone is sinning, pray for them. Don't talk about them. Pray for them. Pray, we'll talk about them with God, not with other people. Galatians 6, 1, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves also, so that you won't be tempted. We need to love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to pray for them and to work toward restoring them. And I think that's one of the ministries that the church has failed to do so terribly is that of restoration. When, when one of us falls, we, we help each other up. We work together to pray for others. To fail to pray for others is to sin against God. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and the right way. So we must pray for others. Look at verse 18 with me. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So you can know that you have victory over the enemy. Know that you have victory over the enemy. As children of God... We have a certainty of victory. God does not fail. He has granted His victory to those of us who place our faith in, in His Son, Christ. We have victory over three enemies, and I'm going to look at these very quickly. We have victory over sin. John says that everyone that is born of God does not sin. Notice the, stink, the distinction that is in this verse. There's everyone... And there, there's the one. John's speaking here about two different people. He says, the one who is born of God, that is Christ Jesus, he keeps everyone who has been born of God from sin. That's us. And so it is Jesus who guards us from sin. He makes his power available to us. Hebrews, we looked at Hebrews 4 earlier, but look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so the same power that allowed Jesus to persevere through temptation to sin without Him giving in, that same power is available to us to overcome our sin. We also have victory over Satan. Guys, I've read the book, read the end. And guess what happens? God wins. 
he defeats Satan. I like the way that Paul wrote this, and, the, and there was a song growing up that we would sing at children's camp about Romans 16, 19. Well, it's actually verse 20 that's the part that I like. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. There is a certainty of Christian power that we have over the devil because Christ has already defeated him. God has already beaten him. He has already crushed him, crushed his head, and he's in his death throes. So there is a certainty of Christian power over the devil, Satan, and over sin when we walk with God and when we serve him. And then we have victory over society. We have victory over society, and, and there's this contrast here that, that John pulls out between we that are of God and everybody else in the world. Society is under the rule of Satan. They live according to Satan's rules. They don't live according to God's rules. And so for those of us who have our spiritual origin in God, uh, we who are Christians have become born again, Jesus says, but the rest of the world still lies underneath lies of Satan, influence of Satan. Notice the language that John uses here. The world lies under the power of Satan, or it's under the sway of Satan. They're not actively choosing to go to Satan, but, but because they are not choosing, they're by default choosing Satan's way. They are lulled into his way. They are spiritually apathetic. They are asleep. They are blinded to the things of God. They are spiritually dead, but we have been made awake and alive by the power of Christ Jesus to shake off the slavery of the devil's ways and to choose the way of Christ Jesus. We can know that we have victory over the world because Christ says he has overcome the world. Let's wrap up our study by looking at these last few verses. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Kind of a strange way to end a letter, but little children, guard yourselves from idols because we need to know that Jesus is the true God. In these closing verses, there's a contrast between the true and the false. John closes by, by saying to guard yourselves from idols. You know, idolatry was the major sin for most of the Old Testament with the Israels, Israelites. But it was presently active in the New Testament. In fact, as John's writing this, he's living in, in Ephesus, and he's looking out his window at, at the temple of Diana, where pagans from all over the world are coming to, to spend money and boost the local economy, but they're serving an idol, a god that does not exist. We have idols today, though maybe not ones of wood and clay, and I'm there's sermons upon sermons. I know I've preached several sermons on idolatry. But here's the, the fact of the matter. All idols present the illusion that they have power. 
But the reality is that they don't have any substance. They don't have any power. They don't have any permanence. In fact, they don't even have a reality. John offers us the truth that Christ Jesus and his gospel is true and they have true power. Jesus is real, he's true, and he is powerful. And yet, in the 4th century, there was this huge controversy in the church about what is the nature of Jesus? Was he fully God or was he just merely like God? And there were those that believed in the latter, that he was like God, and they followed a leader who taught this by the name of Arius. And the Arians conceded that Christ is God, but he's not the true God. And although they would sometimes call Christ true, their denial that he was one with the Father made it clear that they did not acknowledge either the Father nor the Son. The fact of the matter is that Jesus is fully God. There was councils and, and Arianism was dismissed as heretical. And so to teach that Jesus is less than God, less than fully, 100% God, is to go against orthodoxy, right belief. Jesus is the second person of the triune God. He is the true God, and we can accept no substitutes for him. Everything and everyone who claimed to be God, claimed to have some sort of power, is an idol that's based on an illusion of power and of prosperity. And God has three words for those idols. Tear them down. If you want to know that you have eternal life, then you must know that Jesus is the true, the one and only. He is God, and He is eternal life. So to, to wrap up this study, we need to talk about stages of spiritual growth, because there's different levels of spiritual growth. A spiritual babe may become lost in the euphoria of loving the Lord, because that they just trust in that. I love Jesus, but I'm going to let all these False teachings lead me astray. I love Jesus, but I don't like that theology stuff. It's, it's difficult, it's hard, I don't like it. They're easily influenced by false teaching. But as you grow in the faith, false doctrine no longer appeals to you, and it no longer deceives you, and the more that you grow in the Word, the more you desire to know God intimately. And so while good theology is important, you must recognize that it's not just about knowing the Bible, but it is about knowing the God who wrote the Bible. And so spiritual growth progresses from knowing that you are a Christian to knowing the Word of God, to knowing God Himself. The way that you know God is to spend your life focusing on bringing Him glory and learning to understand the fullness of His person. So the question is, where do you stand in this chart? Do you know that you're a Christian? If you don't know that, you need to get that right first. Scripture says that if you place 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the Christ who died on the cross to save you from your sins and that He rose again on the third day, then you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you can know with certainty that you are a Christian. Once you got that down, do you know the Word of God? Do you have good theology? Have you studied it? Do you know it? And as you do so, you begin to know who God is. You be, he reveals Himself to you. And so you move from knowing that you're Christian to knowing the Word of God to knowing God Himself. Do you know that if you were to die today, that you would be with God? Do you have eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord? Or would you be in hell with the devil in a place of eternal death? Do you know the Word of God? Are you, are you delving into its riches and finding its truth and applying it to your life? Do you know God? Are you growing in knowledge, not just so you can say, look at me, I'm so smart, I, I know this stuff about God's Word, but are you growing in your knowledge of Him and, and knowing Him? Where are you on your Christian journey? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us through it. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who revealed your word to us in the flesh, who taught us that he is the fulfillment of the law, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies, and God, that he will fulfill all prophecies when the time of this age is over, that he will return, that he will bring salvation to us in, in a real and meaningful way then, but God, that he also has brought salvation to us in a real and meaningful way now. God, that we can live with victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over society, that we can live according to your word and your will. God, help us to be confident in you, that we know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. God, I thank you for John and for his writing to us. I thank you for the study that we've had. And God, I pray that as we depart tonight, that you would... Help us to know where we stand in this process. And if anyone has not started this journey, that you would draw them to you. Pray this in Jesus' holy, precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.